Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to Part 16 of Discovering the Old Testament, where we will continue our very brief and haphazard exploration of ancient Israelite law. I want to take a moment to remind our listeners that Discovering the Old Testament is made possible by the donations of our listeners. Please consider making a donation if you like what you hear. You can do that on our website, lafkospress.com. With the exception of the centrality of the study of the Torah, the Sabbath is quite possibly the defining institution of the Jewish religion. It is central to the Jewish universe, literally. It holds such a central place that it is worked into the very process of creation. Remember, we learned that creation accounts are tools for articulating a people's core values. If God himself takes a Sabbath rest, it is not something to be lightly tossed aside. The Sabbath is the only ritual institution found in the Decalogue. It's difficult to understand what a radical thing this is. The ancient world has nothing similar among the many nations that surrounded the Israelites. The closest we find is the word Shapatu in Akkadian, which refers to a Babylonian monthly holiday, Um Nuch Libi, a day of the resting of the heart, held on the fifteenth day of the month. It constituted rituals for soothing the gods. The word is a rough cognate with Hebrew Shabbat, which means to cease or stop. But beyond the linguistic similarities, the two days have little in common. The idea of a rest day every seventh day was unheard of. In later years, some Greeks were said to have considered the Jews lazy because they insisted on a holiday every seven days. This rest also extended to animals, and every seven years the land rested from farming and agriculture and lay fallow. Every seventh sabbatical year was a year of jubilee, which we will discuss in the second half of this podcast, that has interesting implications for rest. Even though the idea was unknown elsewhere in the ancient world, it caught on. Part of it was no doubt the egalitarian nature of the day. Everyone, human or animal, of every status, rested. Apparently, during the Babylonian exile, the institution of the Sabbath attracted a number of non-Jews to cast their lot with the Jewish exiles when they returned to Jerusalem. Many Hellenic communities also adopted the concept of a weekly day of rest. Josephus boasted that, quote, there is not one city, Greek or barbarian, nor a single nation, to which our custom of abstaining from work on the seventh day has not spread, end quote. But this institution today is not well understood by outsiders. Most non-Jews see the day as bound up with endless restrictions and rules. They define the day by what is forbidden. But the Jewish community takes a more upbeat view. Sabbath is seen as a true day of rest, reflection, and enjoyment. The day has two aspects, remembrance and observance. Zakor et Yom HaShabbat Lakadsho Remember the Sabbath day to sanctify it. 
The two primary points of remembrance are to remember the creation of the world and the liberation of the Jews from Egypt, which, as we have mentioned elsewhere, was quite literally the creation of the Israelite nation. The version of the Decalogue in Deuteronomy, yes, there is a second version of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, reads, Shamor et Yom HaShabbat Lekadsho, Observe the Sabbath day to sanctify it. The word used for observe has the additional meaning of to watch over in a protective sense. This brings us to the question of working on the Sabbath, which most non-Jews don't understand, largely because of a translation difficulty. The kind of work the Bible forbids is that which has an effect on the outside environment. It doesn't prescribe employment-type working per se, otherwise a rabbi couldn't conduct a Sabbath service. The Bible lists activities like sowing, plowing, reaping, baking, kneading, building, working with wool, weaving, sewing, tanning, and so on. These are essentially creative activities, which makes sense since the Sabbath was instituted as a coda to the act of creating the cosmos. That said, marital relations are arguably creative, but they are considered to be a very appropriate Sabbath day activity. The Sabbath is, after all, intended to be a joyful day. The pinnacle of Sabbaths is the Day of Atonement, which is the ultimate yearly Sabbath, a complete cessation of work. Combined with a much higher level of contemplation and reflection, including fasting and forgiveness. Over the centuries, the rules have multiplied to create a buffer zone around the original commandments, which did not say anything about electricity or internal combustion engines. There are rules upon rules that are intended to prevent accidental or indirect violations. An outsider, and probably quite a few insiders, find this plethora of rules dizzying and off-putting. One could spend an entire lifetime studying the rules and traditions that have grown up around Sabbath observance. Learning to observe and remember the Sabbath takes time for those new to the institution, but the overall sense of the day remains, and that is to stop and keep oneself apart from the world. The Sabbath has always been a celebration, a period of luxury in which everything is prepared beforehand so that one may pass the day in quiet and at ease. However, we can't leave the subject of the Sabbath without some discussion of the famous case of the wood-gatherer who was stoned to death for Sabbath violation in Numbers 15. One interesting aspect of this case is that Moses knew what the law was, obviously, but he had to consult God to determine the mode of punishment. The result of the oracle was death by stoning. The penalty of capital punishment was clear from another instance in Exodus regarding keeping the Sabbath while building the tabernacle. In that section, the penalties for Sabbath violation are given as the karet penalty, which is a punishment for a sin against God and is usually punished by God, and judicial execution. With the exception of making human sacrifice to and worship of the god Moloch, this is the only sin in which we see this double penalty of both divine karet and judicial execution. 
Later rabbinic opinion noted this fact and equated violation of the Sabbath with worshipping idols or abandoning the Jewish faith altogether. It's also notable that this double penalty does not apply to violating the Day of Atonement, which does carry the correct penalty, but not an additional judicial punishment. The Sabbath violation for which the wood gatherer is a precedent is not just an act of gathering wood, even though gathering is forbidden and the wood would obviously be used to kindle a fire which is also forbidden. The weight of the, this violation stems from its intentional nature. In this case, the wood gatherer was acting defiantly, reviling God's word. The Old Testament takes a much harsher view towards intentional violations than inadvertent sins. Even where the Sabbath is concerned, unintentional violations can be expiated with a sacrifice, as with other unintentional violations of the law. In fact, even the most strict interpretations of Sabbath law, such as those at the Qumran community near the Dead Sea, suspended capital punishment for unintentional violations. This level of severity over a day of rest will seem strange to non-Jews, but Jewish tradition and modern scholarship alike credit the institution of the Sabbath as a critical ingredient in their survival. Once a week, it transforms even the poorest, most humble Jew into a person of pride and dignity. There is a saying that insofar as the Jews have kept the Sabbath, so the Sabbath has kept the Jews. Last time I made a point that the basis of the legal system, both the purity regulations and the law proper, are grounded in the idea that the God of the Hebrew Bible is a God of life, and that the Israelites are called upon to reject death and affirm the power of life over death. This is a symbolic message of the entire purity system. It is also one of the fundamental cornerstones of the dietary laws. We also saw how those laws are intended to restrain the taking of animal life to an acceptable minimum. Now that's all very well and good for the animals, but what about the lives of human beings? What about those whose lives are jeopardized or degraded and made vulnerable because of the tides and currents of economics? One of the primary objectives of ancient Israelite law was to mitigate the effects of concentrated economic power. The Torah is very concerned with what can happen if too much power accumulates in the hands of too few. It makes several provisions to disperse that power to the general population, particularly those in need. The most vulnerable, according to the biblical text, are the widows and the orphans. They are frequently mentioned together, often as a shorthand term for all of the poor. But why those? The orphan needs little explanation, but the widow in ancient Israelite society was in a particularly precarious and dangerous position. A woman depended on her husband for support, and as she got older, the assumption was that her children would support her. This is one major reason why the ability to bear children was so important for women. 
If a woman did not have any children who survived into adulthood, she faced almost certain early death due to neglect or even starvation. If she could find her way back to her original family, she might find refuge there, but not necessarily. Remarriage was rare, almost unheard of, especially if she had not demonstrated the ability to have children. If a widow was taken in by another family as a slave, that did not mean she would be cared for when she could no longer perform her duties. In fact, it was almost certain that she would be cast adrift again. If a woman were taken as a concubine, a similar uncertainty prevailed for similar reasons. Or she might sell herself as a prostitute, which carried its own risks. In short, to be a widow without a family was an almost certain death sentence. The Torah sought to address this problem. Israelite law made provisions for contributions of food and money to the poor, as well as some provisions to combat the scourge of debt slavery, a problem that afflicts millions even today. An Indian researcher, Siddharth Kara, who has extensively researched the scope of modern slavery throughout the world, estimates that some 18.1 million people are in some kind of debt bondage or slavery as of 2006. Making food available for free to the poor was a basic part of the law that pertained to agricultural matters. Food could be gathered for free from a field by the poor, provided it was eaten immediately at that time. Farmers were also expected to leave the margins of their fields unharvested so that the poor could come and take what they needed. Rules also stated that while a farmer was harvesting his crops, anything that he dropped or fell to the ground was to be left behind for the gleaners who came afterwards. The law was very specific that the poor were not only permitted, but had a right to this food, and that right was protected by law. There are practices seen today that have their basis in these biblical institutions. Farmers sometimes open their fields to gleaners after the mechanical harvesters have gone through, letting them take what the machines missed. Sometimes a farmer cannot harvest because, for instance, an unseasonable rain has made the field too muddy for the harvester to work. The farmer opens the field and the gleaners get to come in and take what they can. Still other farms make deals with food banks, such that the pickers can have what they can pick for free or at very low cost, provided some fraction of what they gather is set aside for a food bank. Every seven years, Israelite law required that the land have a sabbatical year and enjoy a year of rest. That year, the land would lie fallow with nothing deliberately planted on it. However, Anyone who has done vegetable gardening knows that volunteer plants often appear. In this case, whatever grew of its own on the fallow ground was freely available to the poor. It may seem unhelpful that this was only available every seven years, but there is evidence to suggest that different fields followed different seven-year cycles, so each year there were at least some fields observing their sabbatical rest year. A produce tax of 10% was levied every three years expressly for the purpose of aiding the poor. Incidentally, it is fairly certain that these safeguards to provide food for the poor, and some of the economic laws we will look at later, 
were available both to impoverished Israelites and resident aliens. The law did not encourage, it required the making of loans from the well-off to the poor. Moreover, biblical law is famous for its absolute prohibition of lending and borrowing with interest. This prohibition is found nowhere else in the ancient Near East, but it was clearly intended to prevent a poor Israelite from being pushed further into poverty. Loans were certainly interest-free to fellow Israelites, but it also appears that this was true for resident aliens as well. The sabbatical year did not only apply to the farmer's field, it applied to the balance of loans. The sabbatical year saw the cancellation of the outstanding balance on all loans. What this really means is that loans to the poor were more like grants, but perhaps that was the point. The ancient Israelite legalists understood the danger of allowing debt to proliferate. Many, perhaps most, of today's debt slaves are in bondage from a debt inherited from a parent or even a grandparent who took out a loan and could not pay it back. These modern-day debt pawns are placed in circumstances that make repayment impossible, condemning them and their children to a life of slavery. The ancient Israelites found that unacceptable. For those in the most dire straits, there was the option of bond servitude as a last resort. This might happen if one was unable to pay a debt, and so debtors would be taken on as live-in laborers by a family to help them pay off a debt, or survive until the debt could be forgiven during the sabbatical year. They could also sell themselves as bond servants to farmers who were doing better than they were. Technically, native Israelites could not be made slaves of other Israelites, but resident aliens or prisoners of war could be. That said, as far as we can tell, a slave's working and living conditions were comparable to those of employed Israelites. Slaves had legal claim on their masters for food, clothing, shelter, and medical care. In fact, more often than not, slaves appear to have been regarded as part of the family. Archaeology and the biblical text both suggest that slavery as an institution was not widespread and did not form a major part of the economy in Iron Age Israel. Every seven sabbatical years came the Jubilee year. Not only were all debts cancelled as before, but all slaves were freed. Sometimes an Israelite might have to sell an ancestral landholding or farm to get by, to be retained by the new owner as hired help. But on the Jubilee year, the land reverted back to its original owner, unless the original owner had recovered financially and could buy it back prior to the Jubilee year. This institution also curbed another major source of economic dislocation, land speculation. The Jubilee year was a periodic redistribution intended to reinstate economic opportunity and egalitarianism. It helped preserve family unity and reinforced the idea of one nation of Israel, all living under God's covenant. Discovering the Old Testament
is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafcospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafcos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Thank you.